0: Today's episode is sponsored by Tegas. Understanding expert insights is table stakes for investors, and there's no better option than Tegas. I've been using them for almost two years to get up to speed on companies, and they've helped me immensely as an investor. Tegas also recently acquired BAM SEC, which adds a super fast way to access SEC filings and earnings calls and to incorporate financial data into my models. I run a monthly deep dive series sponsored by Tegas on the blogs. I'll include a link to my cable deep dive in the show notes, and I'd encourage you to follow the link if you're interested in how expert interviews can help you learn more about a company. Currently, anyone who signs up for Tegas gets free access to BAM SEC as well, so check it out. All right, hello, and welcome to the Yet Another Value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. If you like the podcast, it would mean a lot if you could rate, subscribe, review it wherever you listen to it. With me today, I'm happy to have my friend PJ Kurzweil. PJ is he's the founder of what is it? It's PJ's Smidcap Companies, is that it?
1: Yes, yeah, Smidcap uh, investment ideas. That's right.
0: The PJ Smidcap investment ideas. Uh, let me start the podcast the way I do every podcast. First, a reminder to everyone that nothing on this podcast is investing advice. Please do your own due diligence. Do your own work. Consult a financial advisor. Second with a pitch for you, my guest. I've known PJ for it's got to be five or six years at this point. I remember you and I meeting at uh, uh, is it Le Pen? Le Pen. I never know what's it called uh, in New York. And you pitched me on NextStar, and I looked it up because I, I always kick myself when I look at NextStar because you were pounding the table on it for six months with me. I think the stock was forty-five at the time, and I just looked it up. The stock is like one seventy right now. So. That's just a casual five-year, four-bagger, plus a, a couple of percent of dividends thrown in along the way. So, look, P.J. is a smart guy. He follows all sorts of smid caps You know, I'd say the general thing, which you'll see in his write-ups, the general thing P.J. likes, tell me if I'm wrong, P.J., it's companies trading at reasonable to cheap valuations, long-term secular growth stories. So, I, I, that's the type of stuff I generally like, too. But tell me if I'm wrong on that.
1: No, that sounds about right. Um, I would say first, I think we actually met originally with Diamond Resort.
0: Uh, oh yeah, that, in the back of my head, I was like, I think "We did timeshares for a while." Yeah, I do remember that.
1: Yeah, we uh, we shared some time with timeshares. Um, in terms of our focus, uh, in terms of my focus, um, look, I try to find businesses that I think are just not properly understood. I think over time there's been a, a move towards quality bias in terms of businesses that can actually perform and have earnings and subsequent, you know, performance on the top line, bottom line be a catalyst in it of itself. So I would agree. I think valuation is a big starting point, as is recent stock performance. And then, you know, I look for things, you know, different boxes to check whether it's insider buying, buybacks, corporate actions things of that nature that I think can help really move the company forward.
0: Perfect. Perfect. And you know what? Timeshares are probably pretty interesting r- right now too, because I just saw Hilton, which bought Diamond, just did a, announced a big share buyback. That's a, a creative acquisition. The stock hasn't moved that much because of all the COVID factors and stuff, but we can go there a different time for a different podcast. Let's turn to the the company we're going to talk about today. The company is Brunswick. The ticker is BC. And I'll just turn it over to you. What is so interesting about BC today?
1: All right. Well, maybe we'll take a step back. Uh, Brunswick Corporation, it's been around for, I don't know, 180 years, uh, listed in 1925. Uh, It's gone through a few different iterations as far as products, but uh, currently it's the leading manufacturer of marine equipment. So primarily engines and through their Mercury brand. Um, They also manufacture boats, Um, Boston Whaler, Sea Ray, Bayliner, Lund really popular boats. Um, I don't know, they sell somewhere close to 40,000 of those a year. And then they have a growing parts and accessories business that both serves the OEM market about 25%. And then it's about 75% aftermarket. Uh, it's a $6 billion revenue company, uh, margins, gross margins are in the high twenties, EBITDA margins are in the mid teens, uh, it's upper teens, just a really, uh, a business that's evolved substantially. Um, they got rid of their large boat segment. We can talk about that. They got mm-hmm. rid of their bowling business. Uh, they got rid of their fitness business. So they really trimmed down uh, and become this business that really has a tremendous market position in the marine industry that we think uh, has a lot of good tailwinds.
0: Perfect, perfect. And first question I always ask, that's great First question I always ask, and people can look. I did a lot of work on this one. You you gave me a brainer because they had in the past 12 months a major acquisition, not one but two investor days, plenty of conference, uh plenty of conferences and everything, but that's okay. It was labor love. But first question I always ask Markets competitive place. Brunswick, this is not a small company. It's not Google, but this is a multi-billion dollar company. You know, everybody knows boats and everything. It's not crazy complex or everything. So Grand scheme of things. When you look at Brunswick, what are you seeing that the market is missing that's going to lead to a risk-adjusted alpha opportunity here?
1: Uh, that's a great question. Um, well, look, I think Brunswick has been around for a while, but I do think people associate Brunswick with being a boat manufacturer that loses a ton of money in a downturn, and you know doesn't always make money uh, in a normal cycle. And I think mm-hmm. that's really changed. Uh, look, I think this falls under the category of a better business than people really understand. I think, you know, the parts and accessories business has grown substantially since the crisis, maybe four to five X. Uh, the marine engine business, you know, boats used to be 25% outboard, um, excuse me, 25% outboard engine. That's when you have the engine at the back of the, of the stern. Um, today, it's nine out of 10 boats are outboard. And so really, the engine market is a duopoly. So that's a really interesting thing where Yamaha and uh, Brunswick control over 80% of that market. And so the engine opportunities are really a a share gain opportunity and an OEM grab opportunity, just given the elevation in terms of the horsepower of the engines. And then the boat business, I think people are kind of coming around to the fact that there is a tremendous uh, supply uh, deficit in the market. Uh, COVID did see a bump in um, in overall sales to around 220,000 boats uh, in the categories that Brunswick participates in, but they were already kind of hovering at 200,000, so it wasn't like a huge huge bump. Uh, but relative to the shock in terms of limited supply that year, it did create sort of a very big air pocket in terms of uh, supply and demand. And so, when we look forward relative to inventories, retail sales, and production there's definitely sort of an embedded cushion in case retail sales come down. Uh, I would also say, look, Brunswick is a boating company. I mean, there are only three, uh, three to four boating companies out there. It's just consumer discretionary. And at this part of the economic cycle, there are lots of people who just think it's trash. And so I, I think you can find some varied opportunity there. Uh, and finally, look, the business hasn't always been the best converter of free cash. Um, if you look at the previous Investor Day, they thought they were going to do four hundred and fifty million of free cash, and this year they're doing three fifty. Uh, and I think really the basis there is that they see so much opportunity to grow, particularly in the marine engine business, that they're really uh, you know putting the pedal to the metal and really trying to set this business up for for future growth.
0: That's a great overview. And I hate to be a bear, but or not a bear. I hate to push the bear case and not be optimistic. But, you know, I, I think we can dive into all the good things you talked about, the recurring revenue and everything. But at today's price, you know, as we're talking on May 25th, the stock price is $72 per share. That's 7x this year's earnings guide. That's, five, that's less than 5x their 2025 earnings guide, if you believe them. So, right, like, the market... I I think you've got to talk more about the bear than the bull case because the market is clearly skeptical here, right? Things don't trade at 5X. That's like, that's approaching not in today's coal market, but last year, I I would have said that's almost a coal miner type uh, multiple, right? So the market is clearly skeptical here. And we can go into a bunch of things why they are skeptical. But the thing that jumps to me, and we'll probably attack this from a different ways, is COVID pull forward, right? And we saw this mm-hmm. with a bunch of people. They had great sales in back half of 2020 and 2021 because people didn't have anything to do. They couldn't travel all this. They had great sales. And I think the market's saying with uh, with BC, much like with with Peloton, Peloton's the ultimate example, right? They literally built a factory because they had so much demand. They couldn't keep up with it. And when the factory get built, they might just mothball it, right? They don't have any mm-hmm. demand anymore. They pulled forward all the man. Or I think RVs have seen something similar, right? At 2021 at the start, they could not keep up with demand. They built everything they could. They brought the capacity. And now like demand starting to normalize. And I think they might be going into oversupply area. So I've done some work on RVs and all of them trade at Brunswick or lower than Brunswick multiples. And I think with Brunswick, what you might be seeing is, Hey, even right now, Brunswick is saying every boat that's coming off the lot for the next nine months, we've got a spot for it. But the market might be saying after that, you're going to have all this capacity. Brunswick's bringing a million a square feet of capacity online. After that, you're going to have all this capacity and demand might not be there. It might have all been pulled forward. So you get that bullwhip effect. You know, so I said a lot there. I'll pause there. What gives you confidence that kind of this bullwhip effect that we saw with Peloton that we saw with the RBs, isn't going to happen to Brunswick?
1: That's it's a great question. I think if you look historically, it's never really been a, uh, a market that's become oversupplied. It, it has been more on the demand side that will kind of uh, whip things a little bit. Look, I think in COVID, I, I think you pointed out one of your questions, there are about 10 million boats out there um, and there are about 220,000 new boat sales every year. Um, there is a huge uh, used boat market, but obviously it, that doesn't replenish sort of the overall number of boats. Uh, a 50-year average useful life is probably too too long. Um, so, if you kind of think about it, a boat lasting 30 to 35 years, that would imply a a, a demand simply to replenish the the 10 million um, overall boats would be in the high 200,000s. And so, we we've historically undershot that a little bit, and some of that is because you know, some of the stern drive and inboard drive kind of boats have not really recovered, whereas outboard boats have recovered. So there is this overall sort of replacement demand that's not quite being met. Also, if you kind of look at the demographics of the 2020 kind of COVID spike, you did see the average age of consumer come down a little bit, which implies that really they're tapping into a new market of younger consumers, which I think is pretty exciting. Uh, and so, you know, those are kind of the factors I, I do think secularly people are moving from blue to red States. They're getting closer to the water. They're getting closer to warmer weather work from home does enable some people to have a little more boat time, uh, and fishing, it continues to become a more and more popular sport. I think 55 million people touched the fishing rod last year. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't think boats are a one-time thing, uh, and I do believe, look, it's a discretionary purchase. People don't have to buy it. I will say that Brunswick's boats, 78% of them sell, sell for under fifty thousand, so a lot of aluminum uh, freshwater fishing boats. But uh, I, I don't, you know, we're talking two hundred to two hundred twenty thousand, a ten percent increase. It's not like it doubled or tripled. So I, I feel okay. I feel solid that voting demand will be there. And in terms of Brunswick's forecast, I don't necessarily think they really depend on the retail market continuing to grow at any sort of you know incredible pace.
0: No, I, I hear you. You know, just I having looked at especially the RV companies recently, I just can't get out of my head. Like it, when I was reading the investor day or reading the Q1 call, they said every spot that we've got there's a buyer for at the end of it right now. And we've never had that. Our inventory days are super low. Like I'm just having flashbacks to what the RV manufacturers and the RV guys were saying six months ago, nine months ago, and all their stocks are down like 40%. And they're actually still reporting great results, but the market's just saying, hey, like in two months, demand's going to fall off a cliff or something. You did say something interesting that I I, I just want to dig into right there. Like, The market went from 200,000 boat sales to 220,000 boat sales at the height of COVID. And I put it in my show notes, and you mentioned it, 10 million boats out there, and only 200,000 or so get replaced every year, even at 220,000. That seems low for, I think, 30 years is probably the right for a boat. And for some of the higher-end boats, it's probably more like 15 or 20 years. It just seems low. Why are we under-replacing, I don't know if under-replacing the world, but why are we so far below what I would think like the replacement rate for boats should be?
1: It's a great question. Uh, I don't have a phenomenal answer. I I will say that from round 92 to pre-global financial crisis, the average number of new boats sold a year was over 300,000. In terms of why the recovery has been a little slower, uh, I don't have a great answer for you. It's something that I want to dig into a little more. And if I come up with something good, I will certainly uh, revert.
0: (laughs) And you, you mentioned secular trends and I am with you like a little bit of a shift to red States, maybe a shift outdoors. Like one thing I think people have underestimated with COVID is, you know, let's say golf, there were a million golfers and then a million extra picked it up during COVID. Yeah. I'm sure all million aren't going to stick with it, but like to golf, it's a big investment. You, a lot of people might end up doing it. So is it. 100,000 of the million stick around, 500,000, I don't know, but they're not going to give up all those million. And for boats, like if the people who move from blue to red, some might move back. But if you picked up boating, like some people are going to stick around and they're going to stick with boating. And it just makes sense. Like you do get this nice little tailwind of uh, your sustainable base. And we'll talk about recurring revenue in a second, but your sustainable base is just like a little higher because more people got introduced to it.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, in terms of the RV versus boat dynamic, I think if you, you know, one company I looked at, Patrick Industries, they make uh, component systems for both RV and marine and manufactured housing. And if you just hear about how they talk about the marine business versus the RV business, they definitely see a certain level of tightness and structural, you know, demand that, you know, is going to be, you know, that will evolve over the next few years that really is embedded given the uh, the limited supply. So you know you pick a, a you know a dispassionate producer that honestly focuses more on the RV space and they're they're a lot more excited about the multi year tailwinds in in marine. And uh, yeah, uh, as you said, Brunswick. You know, if they were only a boat manufacturer, I don't think I'd be as interested in them. Frankly, I, I think it's the engine business, and I think it's really the parts and accessories business that really kind of gets me excited in terms of this business being able to generate cash throughout the cycle and be a lot more durable than just simply a boat
0: OEM. And we're going to get to the recurring revenue in a second. We'll probably start touching on it now, but I just want to keep with the recession risk. So You know, they said, hey, this year we're going to do about $10 in earnings per share. 2025, their goal is uh, about 17, I think it is. Mm -hmm. And they also, in their deck, people can go look. It's a March 2022 investor day. They said, hey, we know all of you are concerned with recession. We know all of you are concerned with pullback. And they give, I'm looking at the slide right now. People can look at my notes. They give it like, hey, if you think the boat market comes down 30%, parts and autos comes down, uh, parts and replacements come down 15% our earnings per share, instead of being $10 this year, it'll be eight. If you run an even more severe recession, they say our earnings per share will be six instead of 10, right? And none of those, like a $72 stock with $6 recession multiples, like even that doesn't sound expensive, right? I'd probably buy a $72 stock with $6 EPS if that was mid-cycle, not trowel. So the question is, do you believe that? Because clearly I think the market doesn't based on the current price and I don't know. It does strike me as a little bit, uh, a little bit too bullish to say. Hey, we're going to hit a recession as a boat manufacturer, and our earnings are only going to go down from ten to six. And you know, one backup I I posted this as well was you go back. You only have to go back to 2018, and this is just the boat segment. But in 2018, the boat segment was burning money on an EBIT basis on 1.5 billion of sales. 2021, 1.7 billion of sales. They make. 150 million in operating profit, but you know it, it does make me wonder. Hey, are these guys being a little too bullish on their margins, on their recession forecast? Are we going to get hit harder? Because, yeah, I don't know.
1: You know, look, I I hear you on the skepticism. Management can put out a lot of numbers. I, I will say that I do think they provided some transparency into their model, and I, I think some of that made sense. I think for me, the easiest thing to do was to look at 2001 and, and look at. Sort of the performance of boat. And look at the performance of marine engine. They didn't split out PNA and engine at the time, but you can kind of get a sense for the the downdraft in revenue. Um, and I assumed in a recession scenario that there is no replenishment of dealer inventories. The dealers are like, screw it, we don't want to replenish. We'll just wait for consumer demand to strengthen. And you know, assuming incremental margins in sort of the mid 20 range, mid 20s to upper 20s, uh, I for my analysis, got uh, an EPS number around you know, 750 or 770, I believe. And I got them doing roughly seven bucks of free cash. And that's because currently they're spending a bit more than five and a half percent in CapEx, whereas really they they would normally spend closer to four. And because there's been such a a ramp in inventory spend, just given the supply chain challenges and just the need for boats out there. And I think that would normalize a bit too. So Uh, Look, I think the market is saying, prove it to me, which is a little bit of an annoying situation. I I think if Brunswick can kind of prove that they're continuing to grow and continuing to see some of the tailwinds in the coming quarters, I think that will assuage some investors. Uh, But yeah, there is that sense that maybe there needs to be a little bit of a downturn and seeing some resilience before really they get that credit. So as you said, it may turn into being coming a little bit of a longer term investment, but uh I, I do think there is some credibility that the lows are higher and the highs are higher. Uh,
0: and I think a big piece of that, and we've alluded to it, but I don't think you have explained, is their PA business. And they say, hey, right now about 37% of our revenue and 42% of our earnings, because the revenue piece of this is a little mm-hmm. higher margin is recurring revenues and they say by 2025 it's going to be over 50% of our revenues are recurring revenues and when i think boat manufacturer i don't typically think 50% of earnings from recurring revenue so can you go into the pna piece and there are a couple other different segments but can you go into why so much of their revenues are recurring revenues and why these are sticky
1: sure so as you said the pna kind of parts and accessories really anchors that recurring revenue uh, they described that business as being 25% OEM, which means they sell systems into new boats, including their own. And then there's 75% is aftermarket. And I think one of the quotes you shared, and certainly the one of the quotes I shared in the Substack write up, is that uh, they indicated a vast majority of those aftermarket components are consumables. So, really, you know, their largest aftermarket piece is engine components and replacements. Uh, it could be lubricants, it can be other uh, components that need to be uh, replaced uh, within a, re- a short time span on their engines and as i understand it 60 percent of their engine components are proprietary to uh, brunswick or mercury so really you have to buy their own components for that um, but that segment has grown a lot over the years it used to be just thought of as being a propulsion sort of replacement part um, a, a distributor and manufacturer And over the years, they've done a number of deals where they've now gotten into electrical systems. So now they're even inventing batteries that can replace sort of engines to help power the electronics on board. They do things like wiring and circuit boards. Uh, They do controls. So they give you this little joystick now that can help you control a boat in very tight areas or if you're trying to dock the boat. Uh, And more recently, as you noted, they did the deal the Navico deal where they got into electronic systems, which is some really interesting technology, but really in the sonar, radar, uh, and, and mapping areas. So I think that parts and accessories business is now run rate $2.5 so those 20% margins. Embedded in that is a $600, a $600 million distribution business, which touches 27000 uh, outlets, but frankly, if that distribution business weren't part of Parts and Accessories, the EBITDA margins would be even higher.
0: And just to so seven, they say 75% of the parts and accessory business is recurring. And you know, look at I do work for these pod, for these podcasts, but nowhere close as much as work as you. But you know it does strike they just bought navico which is a billion dollar plus business which is uh a lot if i remember correctly a lot of navigation systems and stuff yeah. and, and that doesn't strike me as like a recurring business right because you're only going to get a navigation as an it's very discretionary it's either an upgrade or you buy a boat that has a navico so like how are they getting to 75% of the parts and accessory business is uh is recurring when I just listed the biggest acquisition I think the company's ever done billion dollars this is a seven billion dollar EV company a billion dollars and I don't think any of that is really recurring in there
1: uh that's uh, I think the Navico business I, I do think it splits uh 60 percent uh aftermarket 40 percent OEM so it, it does have more of an OEM systems tilt um I, I think really the engine components uh that's really a very consumable business I think the Uh, Electrical systems, again, some of those components are sort of must have or must need to run boats and those break down. Uh, No, I I think it's a fair point. Um, I don't have a great answer for Navico. I I think there are probably some sales, some software components to it that uh, need to be had uh, on a recurring basis. Uh, But I think a lot of people, they look at some of these systems and they're diehard hard uh, fishing or angling people, and they really want these things in their boats. But I think it's, I don't necessarily have that transparency as to why, you know, the 75% aftermarket business is highly recurring.
0: It makes sense. And Navico, so with the, the they do a lot of navigation systems and stuff. And, you know, navigation systems can be subscription, right? They, they can mm-hmm. be the old TomTom GPS or whatever it is. Are they... Are they getting subscription revenue on the the Navco business, or is it all upfront? You buy the Navco system, you've got it for the life of the boat?
1: Uh, they haven't really uh, disclosed that level of detail. I, I, they did describe the acquisition as being very software-oriented. Yeah. So I, I do think there is some tail to it, uh, but they haven't broken out any sort of software recurring revenue. Uh, yeah, I, I read
0: that. I read the acquisition call and I think they mentioned hundreds of software engineers coming over as oh, part of the acquisition. And I was right. like, oh, like I don't even think of four software engineers as part of a boat business. So that was kind of surprising. Let's stick with the Navico acquisition, right? So this happens in the back half of 2021. Uh, it's it's a little over $1 billion for the Navico acquisition. And it looks like a great business, right? As you said, there there's software components, there's they're partnering with OEMs, which if, I'm sure boats aren't quite cars in this aspect. But when you partner with an OEM, like these guys are planning their business, their boats out years and years in advance, and it's like it's actually very sticky being inside of that, especially some, with something so critical as navigation. So I'm sure it's like a very sticky business. Pretty good visibility as long as boats don't fall off the cliff. But in 2021, they paid 12x adjusted EBITDA, and that's quote net of tax attributes. So ignoring mm-hmm. the tax attributes, probably a little higher. And even at the time, you could see analysts coming on saying, "Like, hey, this is a really good business, but 12x is a, a pretty big multiple. Like, how do you guys think about paying that? When you know, in your write-up, I think you had the PA business at eight to nine times EBITDA, if I'm remembering correctly. So, if that multiple holds, that's where Navico is. They burnt three x EBITDA on Navico, right? Like, that's a pretty right. big. So, how do you think about the Navico acquisition? It's
1: a great question. I mean. I think it's interesting if you look at some of the Brunswick presentations prior to Navico, they, you know, electronic systems was not an area that Brunswick was previously in, and they listed Navico as one of the uh, premier producers of electronic systems. And if you kind of look at the market size and what Navico does, they're unequivocally the market leader in that space. Uh, And certainly a lot of Brunswick boats. Prior to the acquisition, we're using some of their components already. So, I I think it is a huge brand name. I I do think a lot of people, when they invest in a in a boat, uh, whether it be fishing or you know a higher end boat, they're going to want this kind of components. They're going to want the best, and these guys just have a dominant market position. Uh, In terms of what they paid for, yeah, it it is a healthy multiple. Um, I think you know that business when they acquired it, they said it was growing. You know, mid-teens, uh, you know, and then if you look at the Q4 call, they say that Navico kind of nicely beat their, you know, init- what they underwrote the business for doing. So you got to think about it, mid to high teens growing p business with an opportunity to, you know, improve margins, you know, throwing it into a, uh, a much larger organization, being able to cut GNA, being able to cross sell it more effectively. You know i i think there is some merit there to paying a decent multiple uh it was a private equity owned asset so that there are probably a lot of things they can do with it you know some businesses some companies a lot of danaher companies for instance don't always look at acquisition multiples they look at sort of the return on invested capital and compare that to their weighted average cost of capital and if they can see sort of a break even within a short period of time they feel good about it so I think it's a strategic asset. I I think it does enable them to really have a lot more of the boat in terms of the accessories and the parts per boat. And I think that really makes it uh, increasingly easier for them to go to market and get on OEMs uh, to really provide a whole suite of, um, of mechanics and electronic systems, et cetera.
0: Yeah, no. Look, I'm looking at the quote right now, which you reference, where they say, uh, "Hey, Navico beats our beats the model that we had. Uh, you know, they did 35 percent revenue growth in 2021. Bottom line earnings more than double. We expect them to. We expect that trend to continue. They're beating our things, but at the same time, you know, like Brunswick stock is about 100 when they do the acquisition in 2021." Their stock is 75 today. It's not because this was a bad acquisition, but I do look and I say, oh, you paid 12 times EBITDA. People were wondering about the multiple at the time. And now your stock's down 25%. And it's like, oh, the multiple looks even uh, a little more aggressive at this time. So I, I'm just of two minds about it, you know?
1: No, I think it's fair. I think, I think generally in the PA space, when you have a foothold in an area, you it's easier to consolidate smaller players at much more reasonable multiples. So I, I do think they wanted sort of a, I call it a bayhead or whatever. They, uh, they wanted some anchor piece in that segment to really help them continue to be able to expand by rolling up the smaller players that they acquire at much more attractive multiples.
0: Let me switch a little bit. And this does relate to acquisitions. One of the things that they say, and I think one of the core pieces that you mentioned in your model that you like is they say, hey, we are vertically integrated, right? So we don't just make the boat, make the engine. We make all the after parts for the engine. So when we sell a boat, we're getting the boat, we're getting the margin on the engine, we're getting all the lifetime value of the engine, parts and replacements, you know, we're installing, now we're installing the Navico system, so we'll get all the value for the upgrade. And I, I'm a little bit of two minds about that, right? Like I 100% get, you, could, you can raise a razor, razor blade it, right? Like all the aircraft engine manufacturers, they sell the engines at a loss, so they get that lifetime maintenance contract, right? So I definitely can understand that. At the same time, when I think boat, I I kind of go and I think, oh well, car manufacturers, uh, car manufacturers don't do this, right? Like they they basically break it up and they make the car, but they buy uh, they buy a lot of the engine technology from one company. They'll buy the seats from someone else. They don't own the retail side. They have a, a auto dealership, and you'd it'd be weird if you heard a car company go and be like, hey. We're capturing triple margins because we're making our car seats, we're putting them into the car, we're selling the cars through our own dealer. So, like, I'm of two minds about it. And I just want to talk it over to you. Why is vertical integration here? Why is that the right answer? And, you know, their their peers could copy this if they wanted to. And it doesn't appear that they've copied it. So, like, why is this an edge for them? Why is this the right strategy?
1: Uh it, it's a great question. I think some of it just has happened over time in terms of they've Acquired boat brands, then they acquired Mercury, uh, and then over time they've acquired PNA businesses. Look, I, you know, in terms of boats versus cars, it's a very uh, interesting thought in terms of comparing why one would be vertically integrated versus the other. Uh, look, if nine out of ten boats today are outboard and sold, and there's basically a duopoly in terms of engines, I think you'd rather be on the side of. Owning a business that does produce the engines. Uh, you know, if it's, you know, they're going to own 50% of the US market. I think from a dealing with inflation perspective, dealing with supply restrictions, I mean, Yamaha had some issues last year in terms of getting some supplies here. Uh, certainly the shutdown in China doesn't help a lot of the uh, engine manufacturers. Um, Brunswick manufactures a lot of their higher horsepower engines really in Wisconsin. So, uh, look, I think. In a supply, uh, in a challenging supply chain market compounded with higher inflation, I think being vertically integrated has enabled them to really uh, expand margins. And look, why can't other manufacturers do that? Well, I mean, the engine business has been around for such a long time. Uh, You know, they say 10 million boats out there, 50% of the engines happen to be mercury. Uh, You know, it would take billions of dollars and a lot of. Brand name recognition to really get into the outboard engine market and even make a a relative dent. I mean, frankly, it's been going the opposite way where BRP and Seven Marine actually exited the uh, marine engine market. So, you know, the boat market is is not you know it's nine billion dollar market in the U.S. You know, in, in terms of being vertically integrated, I just I think it really helps them manage the supply chain a lot more effectively. And I think their peers simply, you know, look, um, uh, Malibu is vertically integrated. They actually have higher margins than Brunswick. And that's really a function of the fact that they make a premium boat and they charge a premium price, which allows them to capture more margins. But a lot of boat builders are are pretty fragmented. uh, And so they don't have the scale to even consider uh, being vertically integrated.
0: Let me shift to something a little more fun to think about. They've got a a boat club, Freedom Boat Club, I think that's it's called, right. Which basically, like, look, it makes sense to me. I know several people who have a boat and they go out and spend fifty thousand dollars on boat. Let's say, right? And mm-hmm. It's like, okay, cool. I think the average boat gets used like twenty times per year, thirty times per year. I don't know. So, like, you think about that appreciation on that boat, and then you've got the maintenance cost and the headaches, like. That's a, I get people love boats, right? But that's a pretty big investment. Whereas with the Freedom Boat Club, I, I could imagine like a net jets, right? Like, yes, you could go buy a private jet, but it's probably just better to have a net jets and let them worry about the maintenance and like just pay per use. So I have said a lot. I, we haven't even said what Freedom Boat Club is. I want to turn it over to you. What is Freedom Boat Club? And, you know, is it just a silly little thing? Or do you think there's real potential to form like a net jets type membership that's worth a ton of money there?
1: Great question. I, I think when I talk about it in the write-up and we think about it in general, it's maybe three to four percent of boat revenues. So I, it's it's too small really to be uh, a business to really talk about as having a material financial impact today. But the Freedom Boat Club, I think, is a very very interesting business. Um, I think it, you know, there's an upfront fee that's somewhere between three and ten thousand dollars, and then people pay three to four hundred dollars a month to basically have access to boats that are between the ages of zero and four years. So they, they get access to fresh boats, they get access to uh, people to help train them in how to use the boat. Uh, from a financial perspective, 75% of uh, the revenues associated with it are recurring or subscription-based. Uh, and basically they're company-owned uh, boat as a service operations, and then their franchise operations. So, franchise, they own a 6% royalty fee. And then, if they own and operate it, they get all the money from that. And the margins there are typically in the mid 20s. So, as you said, I mean, it's almost, I kind of thought of it as sort of like a timeshare situation versus a vacation home. I think it t- taps into a different demographic that just either doesn't have the means of buying a boat or doesn't want the hassle of buying and maintaining a boat. Um, I think they bought their initial uh, foothold for about eight times EBITDA. And you know now they have 350 locations. They have over five fifty thousand members, and it's interesting. Not all the boats right now are Brunswick boats. But in time, every boat that will be in these boat uh, share clubs uh, or shared access clubs rather will be Brunswick boats. And structurally, as you know, currently that number is four thousand, but it will go to five six thousand. Suddenly, you think about that as having a three year life. Uh, and then you start getting a meaningful replacement number that goes strictly to Brunswick boats. So it, it, it is a very interesting area. And in addition, when boats come off sort of their useful life for the boat club, they will get sold through their boteca, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, their used yep. boat sort of dealer. And, and mind you, you know, if 200,000 boats get sold uh, brand new, 800,000 get sold used, so it's a really big market out there. And being able to offer some sort of warranty and, and being a huge boat manufacturer yourself, I think that gives you a competitive edge in terms of being a uh, used boat, you know, a, a credible used boat
0: dealer. Yeah, it, it just seems to me, I get it small, but that seems to me the type of thing you could get a network effect. And you know, one of the old Carvana arguments was uh people buy a used car every seven years, but part of that is because the process sucks. And What if the used car market? You can expand it to people buy used cars every five years, just because you make the process a little better. You take some of the friction out of it, and you know, as they say, as they say in their slides, they're like, there are 140 million people who go boating. There's only 10 million boats out there. Like, I bet there is room for a lot more people who, if you could get a good membership that said, "Hey, choose your weekend when you're free. You can go once per month or something." Now. $10,000 $10,000 up front probably is going to be a gating factor, but it, you could imagine different models where this could really take off and you could have a really big network effect, right? That's the great thing about NetJax. You're not going to start up a private jet uh, membership competitor because you really need to have coverage everywhere. And this would be a little more local, but I, I could just see a lot of potential for that subscription business. It lets them push their boats. It gives them inventory for the used car, it, for the used boats. It gives them relationships with people who like boating because they join the membership. Mm-hmm. Like, I can just see a lot of potential there, but probably just a call option. Let me turn to question I love to ask everyone is, if this company is so cheap, why aren't they buying back shares? And I don't have to ask that here, right? Like they came out and said, and there's some great quotes. I'd encourage people to go read the Q1 earnings call or release. They say, hey, we bought back, I think it's 80 million in Q1. We're going to buy that 80 million in Q2. We think we're undervalued. We're going to do 300 million this year, and if our stock stays here, we're probably going to do more than 300 million. million. We're Probably going to keep leaning into it. Great, love it. We don't have to talk about repurchases. So I have to ask you a different question. Insider ownership here sucks. There's never—I mm-hmm. don't think there's ever been insider buying. Uh, the the CEO owns an okay amount of stock, but you know he's been here three years. It's not huge. There are several directors who I looked it up. They get more paid more. Uh, every quarter in board fees than their total stock ownership. So I'll switch and ask the insiders can see value here, right? They want to buy back shares. They're talking about it all the time. Why don't we see insider buying? Why don't we have some insider ownership here?
1: It's a phenomenal question. Uh, I won't lie. I spoke with management quite recently, and that was one of the main questions I asked them. I will note that there has been some turnover in the board. So, you know, in terms of hitting their requirements for board ownership. Yeah, yeah. I think that 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 will take some time.
0: I got to get the headline number. That gets people excited. I do get there's complexities to it. But even if you adjust for that, I would say insider ownership is pretty low.
1: Yeah, I I think the CEO owns close to 80,000 shares, you know, six and a half million dollars, you know, relative to what he gets paid. I'm sure, you know, it's not a tremendous number. The CFO is relatively new. Uh, He was formerly the head of IR. Uh, You know, I, I think, I think if the stock hangs to where where it is, I actually do you think we'll potentially see some insider buying. I, I, I do think that uh, they remain very uh, convicted that this business is firing on all cylinders and demand is really there. And sort of, they're pretty baffled by where the stock's moving. I mean, I just want to touch on the buyback because even though you highlighted it, I, I think look. Management's not in the business of valuing their business per se. I mean, that's really our jobs. But they know what acquisitions are out there. This is not a highly levered company. I'm sure there've probably been people talk about them about what their business could be worth in general. So, and I think they have a better insight into their future prospects, certainly in the near term. And, and so they have a good pulse there. And so when I look at buybacks, I never like to hear that. Oh, it's accretive. That's why we're doing it. I like to hear management teams that really articulate why they think a buyback makes sense in the context of where the stock is trading. Uh, it's you know Sometimes you'll find promotional management teams, but sometimes you also find management teams that are thoughtful and understanding what they need to show about the business to help create shareholder value. So I found the quotes to be helpful. Um, to your point, look, this business should do $350 million of free cash this year. I think that's a reasonable cap to what they can do in buyback but they can certainly front load those buybacks if they think the stock is really depressed here. And so we could see them be on a run rate number that well, it sees that 350 really because they wanna front load and be involved today. So I think insider ownership, like you said, it's like 80 basis points, it's not great. Um, And we definitely like to see them be more active there. Uh, Another write-up I did on volunteer, there was that combination of insider buying and the move for share buybacks. And so I I think when you see that double signal, it's a little more appealing, but I would just say, stay tuned.
0: We're we're going to talk about volunteer for a quick hot second at the end, but I'll save that for the end of the the podcast. I've got two small questions outstanding, but before I get to those, why don't I just ask? We have covered a lot here, right? I think we've done a nice job covering everything. I do have two more small questions, but I'll pause here and ask, anything you think we should have covered that we didn't cover or anything you think we kind of, gloss over that you wish we had covered a little harder?
1: Uh, Look, I I, I do think the free cash um, component of this business has been inconsistent over the years. They had to get rid of a pension plan that, that was really dragging on free cash back in 2019. Look, I think there's been a real transformation here. I think it's been slow moving in some respects, but I do think the business is highly focused today. A lot of fixed costs have been removed. Um, You know, I kind of mentioned in the write-up that, you know, today's profitability is on a much lower base of revenue, which suggests the fixed cost structure, particularly for boats, is much better. Look, I think the engine story is a phenomenally interesting story. Um, If you look at one of the charts, they're one of the only manufacturers that really makes these 300 and above horsepower engines. Uh, You can do some YouTube searching and you'll see the 600 horsepower engines an absolute beast. And it's really, they have 70 foot boats that are frankly taking these outboard engines. They, they will take three or four or five or six of them. And those boats historically have never even been able to use outboard engines. And the beauty of an outboard engine, it's easier to maintain, it's quieter, uh, they can be more fuel efficient, they can be a little more eco-friendly if they're not using diesel like inboard engines. So I think, I think the engine component is a really interesting part where it's a real land grab right now. And uh, yeah, I think those were really maybe the two other points that I would focus on. So again, free cash, improved cost structure, and then really the opportunity with an engine to potentially outdo their growth targets. Now you mentioned the $17 in EPS. Um, that's not something that anyone can really bridge to. I think it's because they envision themselves doing some larger PNA deals in the out years. Um, I think that they can get to $14 a share in EPS in 2024, which look, if things slow down, that number probably slips a little bit. But I do have conviction that uh, today's sort of 350 free cash number can easily be double that number, even in a scenario in which there's a little bit of a slowdown.
0: You know, I said I had two questions, but I'm going to change it to three. And by the way, I agree with you on the fixed costs. I just encourage anyone go read the uh, March investor, the March investor day. And they do a really nice job talking about how they've changed the fixed costs over the business, the variable costs. And, you know, believe it or not, but I, I thought they did a nice job highlighting that. So I just wanted to point that out. Three questions left. First, hate to go back to the bullwhip effect and everything, but one of the things that I worry about here, which I don't think we, we fully addressed, was we did address the demand side of it, but I do worry they've got a million square feet of capacity coming online at the end of this year. And obviously they think they can fill that. And I, I, Again, I come back to the RVs, and I just get worried. Hey, in this case, it's not just that you're maybe your demand's too high. The capacity you're bringing all that capacity online. So, how do you get comfortable that they're not kind of overinvesting in capacity here?
1: Right. So, I I like to think of the capacity expansion really for boats as going from forty thousand to fifty thousand. It's not going to happen overnight. It's gonna be staged. And frankly, it's gonna what they're doing is they're expanding their low cost facilities. So they're they're not greenfielding it like uh as you mentioned, uh Peloton uh, is and maybe we'll complete Peloton it didn't just it.
0: greenfield. Peloton went and spent several hundred million dollars to buy suppliers. So they greenfield and they bought suppliers.
1: Yeah, yeah, really uh pretty crazy. Look, I think I think there's definitely um so, you know, you highlighted a quote about Boston Whaler. There's, that's a saltwater fishing brand, a uh, pretty iconic brand. I, I think they're being very surgical in terms of where they want to expand capacity. Mm-hmm. And if demand isn't there, they're not going to go from 40 to 50. This is really thinking about it really in bite-sized increments. I, I, I do agree that if you look at where the inventories are today, it's a good story if they produce closer to 40 to 42,000. If you immediately start thinking they're going to produce 50,000, then, you know, there's definitely some questions as to where the demand will be there. So I think it's a very fair question. I just think that they're going to be, they're not going to just do a step function in terms of growing capacity. I think they're going to do it kind of very surgically. And even the capacity number, I mean, this past year, I think they produced or sold somewhere closer to 38,000 boats. So there's the nameplate and then there's what they actually are able to do. And so yep. there's going to be a Delta there too.
0: Perfect. Perfect. All right. Second question. This is a smaller one, but I was a little surprised. They said, Hey, I, I think the average bro, it's uh 78% of boats sell for less than $50,000 per uh, $50,000 headline price. And somebody asked, Hey, Inflation's rising. Maybe consumers are weakening, weakening. Interest rates are rising. How does that impact? Uh, how does that impact your buyers? And they said actually, only about fifty percent of boats that we see are bought on credit. And that number kind of surprised me. You know, like I, I don't know the number for cars, but I would be cars are a lower ticket than boats in general, and I would be shocked if only fifty percent of cars are bought on credit. So, uh, how do you think about credit cycle, credit that fifty percent number they threw out there? Yeah, it, it it's
1: it's a good number. If I had to pull something out of a hat, I don't know if I necessarily would have pulled that fifty thousand uh, that fifty percent number. Uh, from what I understand, both typically a a, a consumer will put down ten to twenty percent as a down payment, and then enter into a ten to fifteen year loan. Um, you know, if you just assume that the, it's a, a loan that amortizes over time, sort of flat payment. And you kind of stress interest rates up or down 100 basis points, or in our case, up 100 basis points. It really only adds up to around 15 to 25 dollars a month. You know the complexities of consumer behavior in terms of people at that income level. It's not easy to really ascertain. As you said, these are aluminum boats. You know they sell a ton of aluminum boats that are fishing boats, where the the highest value component on them is an engine, um, and that's Far and away, so it's a it's a reasonable question in terms of thinking about why is fifty percent the right number and and what higher rates mean. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's really TBD in terms of really seeing the performance there.
0: Yeah, it, it's just tough to know, but uh, the fifty percent number it gave me I was surprised I was pleasantly surprised by it, and as you said, like people are really concerned about it, but. It doesn't seem like interest tax on that much to it. And the consumer... Go look at the JP Morgan conference, the JP Morgan investor day from a couple of days ago, like consumers still seem strong. There's still lots of jobs out there. So who knows, right? This is a forward-looking business and I do get kind of caught up in, hey, we're talking about what the consumer is going to do today and a month from now. And like, what really matters is 2025 or like a few years up. Well, Did you want to say something there? Go ahead. Yeah, I,
1: I will say, and I think management's made this comment. So I'm not going to say it's wholly original, but you know, when you're buying a, a sub $50,000 boat, you know... It really depends on your employment. It depends maybe on the equity in your house. Those things are still very strong. It doesn't depend on how much Tesla stock you own and whether it's up or down 40%. So thank goodness. These, guys, these guys aren't selling mega yachts. I mean, they kind of got out of the yacht business really because they weren't even manufacturing the engines for those businesses. They were low margin, low synergy businesses. So I think some of the factors that you know, your typical stock investor would think about like, hey, would I want to make this massive discretionary purchase? I think that calculus is a little lower for the cohort of people that buy a lot of these aluminum fishing boats. And
0: if fishing is your hobby and you love fishing, right? Like everybody's got their hobbies. If that's your hobby, like what might look like a silly purchase to you or me, you know, I've got friends who all, their truck is their baby, right? And if you're fishing your hobby, your boat might be your baby, and you and I might look and be like, "You spent forty thousand dollars on a boat? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard." And they're like, "That was my dream. I own my boat now. Like I go fishing when I want." So teach their own, right? That's the beautiful. That's the beautiful thing about capitalism. Everybody can spend their money on what they what they want. It's got its faults, but that's one of the beautiful things about it. Last question. I think this relates to interest rates, but we might as well address it. Gas prices, right? A year ago, you could go fill up your boat for two dollars a gallon. Now you go fill up your boat, and you're going to get sticker shock. It's four fifty a gallon. I think management has really addressed this in the calls and stuff. But I, I just there are going to be some listeners who think about it. Gas up. That's bad for boats. That's bad for boat use and bad for itself. So I'll just toss it over to you.
1: Yeah. Look, I think I think they quoted the average number of hours people use a boat is around thirty hours a week, and I, I'm sure that depends on whether you live. Uh, in the northern regions, where it, there's a shorter boating season than the, than in the south, look, boats have never been fuel efficient uh, vehicles. I mean, I, I've seen boats really uh, a good boat might do uh, one mile per gallon. So I, <laughs> is, I, I that think, a,
0: is that really how? It get, yeah, yeah, there?
1: yeah. I mean, look, it, propelling a boat in water, the amount of friction and and all that in terms of getting through water is just it, it's it's so much different than driving through a road. And frankly, that's part of the reason why we haven't seen the electrification of of boat engines. I mean, the the sheer battery you would need would like weigh down the boat. You'd have to replace, you know, five people couldn't hang out on your boat party. Uh, Andrew, you would have to have a massive lithium ion battery sitting there. So I I think boats aren't notoriously very fuel efficient. I think if you've made the investment in a boat and you value the time uh, out on the bay or in the sea or in the lake, you're kind of going to use it either way. Um, You know, the management tried to quantify it and say, hey, look, if gas is here, you're really only seeing an increase that's not too much relative to maybe what your gas consumption is for a car. I I just think, you know, you're not using it every day um, and you really value the time out, out, out in the sea or out in the water. It's, it's going to be a pinch, but it's probably not going to be a deal breaker as far as how much you use the boat.
0: Perfect. Uh, great. Hey, I have two unrelated BC questions, but I always want to give you the last thing. Again, anything you think we should have hit, anything we didn't hit hard enough that you want to talk about BC. And the answer can be we did a pretty nice job.
1: No, Andrew, I think you asked a lot of good questions. And uh, some, some, I always love these conversations because it forces you to really understand the story. And frankly, it gives me things to really want to dig through and go back and look at. So, you know, learning about a company is an iterative process and being able to talk to someone smart about a company and you've done your homework, it's really uh, it's really helpful and, and nice to do.
0: People ask why, why I do the podcast and that's the reason, right? PJ's done a month's worth of work on BC and I got to do a morning's work of work and then ask him all my questions on it. Now I've got a super interesting company trading at seven times EPS that I can, you know, I, I've got a lot more work to do on it, but now I'm a lot smarter on it. Two unrelated questions. Number one, Vontier VNT. That was your first write up. BC was your second write up. You wrote up Vontier mm-hmm. last month. I pulled up the chart. It's up. Uh, it's up five percent since you wrote it up, and the mm-hmm. Russell is down almost nine percent. So there we go. There's some good alpha. But they also announced a sh- they reloaded their share repurchase this morning. Filed naked, reloaded this morning. Thank you to them for doing it in front of the podcast, but just wanted to get your quick thoughts. VNT, you still like it here, I'm guessing? Everything's progressing with the repurchase and everything?
1: Yeah, look, I think Von tier is another one of those underrated businesses. I think the sell-off in the stock, uh, I think as a highlight in the write-up, was really a quarterly earnings uh, projecting into 2023. This EMV, this Europay MasterCard Visa, the tail of that in terms of there was a regulatory requirement to have your outdoor POS systems be able to accept the chip to prevent skimming fraud. And there was always sort of a peak to trough for $400 to $500 million revenue decline, but they didn't quite articulate the time frame. I think two things have been really interesting in terms of well, three things, frankly, that have played out that I saw from the last earnings call. And that's, A, the um, continued growth of their car wash technology business. And actually, a number of companies out there, Driven Brands, I don't know if there's like a Mr. Car Wash or something, a Leonard Greenback um, car wash business. I mean, it's just really, car washes are growing gangbusters, and they're a nice ancillary business for C-stores. So that's nice to see that that area is growing and their technology, you know, the acquisition they made while expensive is really helping push the top line of their mobility technology business. Secondly, I hinted in the write up that they could divest some non core assets, whether it be their uh, telematics business or their smart city business, which is kind of an interesting business. They can control traffic lights to help EMS vehicles uh, move through the city quickly. And then they really have an auto aftermarket, whether it be a diagnostics or wheel servicing business. Um, And I think all those businesses can, frankly, be on the block, and they indicated. Uh, clearly that they are marketing some businesses to be sold to raise um, capital you know historically danaher businesses grow through acquisition so seeing that initial share repo uh, they announced it in last may of 21 but they didn't act on it until very recently and there were some very bullish quotes around that uh, and they spent 257 million out of the 500 million and they seem inclined to buy more and so when i see that They've kind of reloaded that authorization. I think that that confirms that they still see a lot of value here. And so, yeah, it's a defensive business. Um, and I've been happy so far with how it's performed, but I, I definitely see some of the actions they're taking uh, as really putting the business in a, in a better position to, to succeed going forward. And the multiple discount, the free cash flow yield discount, uh, I think those have to still bridge over time.
0: Perfect, perfect. And then the second question I was going to ask. So you've got volunteer, you've got BC. I think you put up BC next week. It it looks like you're trying to do maybe one a month. Is that the target? But when when's the next one going to come out?
1: Great question. Uh, It's funny. I was looking at was it franchise group? I was looking at that independently, and then I remember you, you know, kind of posted some interesting um, from the earnings call. You posted an interesting quote. Uh, Look, I think. Finding a business where you think you have some edge or you can add some value to the discussion isn't easy. So I I do spend quite a bit of time trying to isolate a business I find interesting. Uh, A month has kind of been the cadence. And I I think a month is, is kind of reasonable. I think, you know, I haven't been in the stock pitching game for a little while. So kind of getting my sea legs and getting back into it. So hopefully maybe that cadence can speed up a little bit. But you know, the goal is to put something that's thoughtful and hopefully well-written and at least get people get it on their radar. You may not like what I have to say. You may have questions where you think buying a consumer discretionary stock is stupid now, but at least they'll be on your radar and you'll, you'll, you'll be a little more, you'll be a little sharper on it.
0: It's funny. You say buying a consumer discretionary stock is stupid. I've been massively bullish retail and somebody talked to me the other day and they're like, it's the it's one of the most contrarian trades i've ever seen because everybody just hates retail and you know last week when retail would go down 10 percent every day i was like oh gosh i see why and then this week when it goes up 10 percent every day you're like oh i'm a freaking genius but now i hear you look you said you try to uh do thoughtful write-ups for everyone and i've talked to you for a long time i've read your first two write-ups i know that's going to be the case so everyone can go follow I'll, i'll include a link it's PJ Smith cap investment ideas. It's, it's under his full name, but there'll be a link in the show notes. So just click on it, go subscribe. The first two write-ups are up there and they're free. So go check it out. And uh, PJ, looking forward to seeing the third write-up, looking forward to having you on again, in the podcast in the future.
1: Well, thank you so much, Andrew. Some great questions. And uh, I've heard some of the other podcasts, you know, really thoughtful people. So I'm, I'm, it's a privilege to be on.
0: Hey, thanks again for coming on.